Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. If this is your first time visiting with us this year, and there's a Bible verse, uh, they'll be up here on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible, but uh, we typically give Bibles away. Uh, but they are locked up in the school right now, and so I'm sorry that we don't have a copy of the Bible to give to you, but I will do whatever I can. If you don't have one, come talk to me. I will give you one, find out a way that we can get you one um, here as fast as we can. But if this is your first time joining us this year, our focus this year has been on the book of Romans. As I shared last week, our theme this year is making disciples. It is, it is influencing others to be in that genuine, leading others into a genuine relationship with Christ and helping them to become more like Christ. And so Romans is, is really a perfect book to talk about this pertinent subject of the gospel. It was written by the Apostle Paul, addressed to the church in Rome on the subject of the gospel. It's the first apostolic teaching and all of Scripture that deals with this subject. And so the gospel means good news. It is God's answer to man's problem of sin. That's what the gospel is. God moved with compassion. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth to take the place of sinners by dying on the cross. Jesus Christ rose from the grave, conquering both sin and death. And He provides a new life to all those who repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God wills that all men be saved and come into a knowledge of Him. So every man that turns from his wickedness through repentance and comes to Christ for salvation, John chapter 6, verse 37 says that Christ will in no wise cast out. So the entire book of Romans focuses on this good news. Man's need for salvation, God's sovereign plan for salvation, how man can experience salvation, how man should live after salvation, that is Romans in a nutshell. This morning we find ourselves jumping into a brand new section of Romans, and that is Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. The overall flow and the theological framework, if you've ever done a study through the book of Romans, really flows well in chapters 1 through 8. It's pretty clear and straightforward. Matter of fact, you know, Paul talks about man's problem of sin. He calls it out. He says, God will judge mankind because of their sin. Then he provides a solution for man's sin, and that is the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. After salvation, Christians enter this process of sanctification, which is this process of becoming more like Christ, being molded into the image of Christ. And then the last section of the book, chapters 12 through 16, are equally straightforward as the first section. But then there's this middle section of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Some theologians say that Romans 9, 10, and 11 is more of this really a parenthetical phrase in between the first and final section of Romans. Other theologians claim that Romans 9 through 11 is the foundation for the entire book. Many commentators begin their exposition on these chapters with this warning. They acknowledge the problems within this first section. I want to make it clear, it doesn't mean that they are um, wrong in its information, but problems that occur in people trying to interpret what Paul is actually trying to say, and others deny that there's difficulties that actually exist. Now, before we go any further, I must make it clear that there are aspects of God's nature specifically discussed in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 that we will not fully understand on this side of eternity because of our human finite minds. There are things about God because of who God is and the fact that God is God that we will not be able to fully comprehend. 
I love the transparency of Chuck Swindoll when it comes to this dealing of this passage. And this is what he has to say in his commentary. Really kind of a disclaimer before he jumps into it. This is what he says. Therefore, I would admit without shame that this section of Paul's letter contains mysteries I have no ability to unravel. Like the enigma of God's nature, I accept God's sovereign plan as Scripture has revealed it and then faithfully teach it as the Holy Scripture enables me. Unfortunately, this will not satisfy everyone. Some will think I have not been bold enough because I don't develop doctrine from what Scripture merely infers. Others will chafe because I don't round off the edges of Paul's intentionally left jagged. But at the end of the day, I want to base my teaching on sound biblical exegesis, even if it leaves gaps in my theology or appears to undermine another truth clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. I don't want to repeat history, which is littered with the efforts of men and women who thought they must have every secret in heaven codified, classified, cataloged, correlated, and connected. And he's a good preacher because he alliterated all those final words there. And so it is with that same heart that we will approach this difficult section. And I hesitate to say this because I don't want you to think that I don't study for the other passages. I do. But I spent a great deal of time painstakingly looking at multiple different commentaries, uh, multiple different writers from, from all different perspectives on just these few verses that we're going to study this morning. And I wrestled with it. And I'm probably going to say things this morning out of the efforts of my study that I will grow in later on in my life. But I give you my word that through prayer and through the fervency of, of really searching out what the truth is, I will only give you what I believe to be the truth through this hard study that I've done and through this prayerful time in God's Word. Now, normally we would expect this rich teaching of theology in Romans 8, as I mentioned earlier, to seamlessly flow into Romans chapter 12. But in chapters 9 through 11, Paul pauses to address this pertinent question. That's this. If God loves His chosen people, and keeps his promises, and nothing can separate God's elect from his love, just as Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39 indicate, then why does it seem that God has forgotten both his people and his Old Testament promises? The question is really logical, a logical conclusion based upon the rejection of the Messiah by many of the Jews that occurred, obviously today, and that occurred during this particular time period. By this particular time, Paul writing the book of Romans, the majority of Jews had rejected God's master plan of salvation. So if the Jews were part of God's chosen nation and God made many promises to the nation of Israel, then why were so many Jews rejecting God? Didn't God assure the great Jewish leaders such as Abraham, Moses, Jacob, and David that the Jewish people would be saved? And if God's chosen people rejected him and the promise of the Jews no longer seemed to apply, then how do we know that the certainty that we are provided for us as Christians are actually true? That we are safe in God's hands. How do we know that? And so with, with, with this understanding that some drew the conclusion that even though, as Romans 8.39 indicates, no height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, this does not seem consistent with God's particular dealing with His chosen people of Israel. I mean, if God is not faithful to save His own chosen people, the Jews, then who is to say that we as Gentiles have assurance in God's sovereign love? So within this, uh, this particular parenthetical section of Romans, Paul takes the time to answer this question by discussing the past, the present, and the future condition of this nation of Israel. 
And while answering the question regarding God's dealing with the nation of Israel, the Apostle Paul touches on several different aspects of God. And my prayer is that you will be encouraged as we take really within this section and take a deeper glimpse into who God truly is. So over the next several weeks, we're going to dissect these three chapters as it discovers this doctrinal significance in light of the gospel. We're going to discover and observe how God's dealings with Israel is an example of God's sovereign rule that we can apply in our own lives. So with that being said, if you could take your Bibles, if you have not done so, and turn to Romans chapter 9. As I mentioned earlier, Paul could have easily gone from Romans chapter um, 8, verses 37 through 39, and seamlessly float into Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And so doing, Paul could have still maintained perfect continuity within this epistle. With the close of his section of sanctification in Romans chapter 6, verse 8, the next logical thing for him to say would be Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. But instead, he diverts to this lengthy explanation of Israel's past, present, and future to provide the needed insight for personal salvation, as well as the security of the believers in Rome. Some describe it this way. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39, it describes Paul's ultimate victory over evil. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, it allows us to have a deeper glimpse into the nature of God. So put on your seatbelts and get ready to dive in. But before we dive in, we have to make a few things clear. It is important to know that we hold to a literal interpretation of the Word of God. So in other words, we interpret the scripture from a literal standpoint based upon how the authors intended it for it to be uh, interpreted. So for example, there are some books that we know, Psalms being one of them, that are written from a poetical standpoint. So we interpret it from a metaphorical standpoint based upon how the author intended it to be interpreted. For example, in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 12, when Isaiah says, The mountains and the hills will break forth before you in his singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands, we interpret the passage literally how Isaiah meant for it to be interpreted, and that is from a medical or <laughs> metaphorical standpoint to express really the joy that Israel will experience when they return from their exile. But Paul's writing style is not poetical, it is straightforward and direct. So the words that Paul writes, we interpret them from a literal basis because that was his intent. If we don't interpret scriptural from a literal standpoint based upon the intentions of the author, then we move into a subjective approach to scripture. And so who is to say what is true and what isn't true? And so when Paul says, for example, Israel, we interpret that to be in Israel. In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, when Paul speaks of the nation of Israel, we interpret that as Paul literally speaking about that nation. Paul's topic in this particular section here is not the eternal predestination of individual human souls to heaven or hell. John Calvin points that out in his Institutes in Christian Religion. In addition, Paul's main purpose in this section is not to reconcile divine foreknowledge and human freedom, although I, I wish that he would, but that's not his intent. Paul's purpose in Romans chapters 9 through 11 is to explain how God could set aside his chosen people and save the Gentiles and how he will restore the nation at some future date. But it is through God's dealing with Israel that we gain this small glimpse into the sovereignty and the righteousness and the holiness of God. In Romans 9, we observe the sovereignty of God. But more specifically, in Romans chapter 9, we discuss and observe God's sovereign election. 
In Romans chapter 9, it's an emphasis on God's past selection of Israel to be His chosen people. Within this chapter, Paul takes the time to touch on the faithfulness, the righteousness, and the justice, and the grace of God, all in light of God's sovereign election. Now that I have your attention, because I told you we're going to be talking about God's election, let's stand and read God's Word this morning. Romans chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 to start off. This is what the Word of the Lord says. And I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promise." who is of the fathers and of the whom as concerning the flesh of Christ came over, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. But not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they called children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I hated, or have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And within these verses, we begin to see this display of God's sovereign election when it comes to the nation of Israel. And my prayer that through our time together this morning is that by observing the faithfulness of God in light of His sovereign election, our hearts will be encouraged in the fact that God chooses people to accomplish His plan according to His sovereign rule, not based upon individual heritage or merit. So the title of the message this morning is God's Sovereign Election Part 1, The Faithfulness of of God. Thank you. you. May be seated. What you see here in the first five, five verses is really this rather unusual display of emotion from the Apostle Paul. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we usually picture a very gruff man that very rarely cried, or the only emotion that he showed was an emotion of passion that came forth as what well, seems to be anger. But very rarely do we see a man that, that is on the brink of crying because he's so overcome with the thoughts and the things that he is facing here. Paul begins in verse 1 by emphasizing the truth, the fact that the words that he is about to say are inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing witness to the Holy Ghost. What he wanted his audience to understand is that the words that he's about to express is not the result of some mere emotional um, experience that he's going on in his life. It's, it's actually the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he is about to share with them. In verse 2, Paul says that he is a great heaviness and a continual sorrow in his heart. This continual sorrow and heaviness that Paul was experiencing was in direct correlation to the Jews' rejection of the Messiah. Paul understood what they were missing out on. Paul knew the horrible future that they would face because they were not in Christ. In verse 3, Paul further expresses his anguish over the situation of the unregenerate Jews through a bold statement that really shows both passion and humility from Paul. This is what Paul says in verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
This phrase uttered by the mouth of Paul is a powerful display of the sacrificial love that he had for his kinsmen. We understand that Paul's relationship with the Jews was complicated. You look at the history of Paul, we know that Paul, when he was Saul, was very much loved by the Jews. And what he thought was the appropriate thing to do, he was really a leader of those that went out and captured Christians and killed them for their faith. But after Paul received Christ and his life was turned by the power of Christ to obviously the ways of the Lord, he lived his life preaching the very same gospel that he killed people for. And there was no more of a bigger group than the Jews that persecuted, that tortured, that ridiculed, that hurt Paul than the Jewish people. But Paul says, I wish that I could take your place in suffering. What a powerful display of love that Paul had for the Jewish people. The Bible says here, uh, really to unpack this, this verse and understand the meaning here, when Paul says the word accursed in verse uh, 3, it comes from the Greek word anathema, which means to devote to destruction in eternal hell. So what Paul is saying in verse 3 is that he literally wishes that he could take the place of those Jews in hell and suffer for eternity on their behalf. I'm going to be honest with you. I have never gotten to that point in my life where I wish that I could, I wanted somebody to be saved so badly that I wish that I could take their place. I've never gotten to that point. Again, this phrase is coming from a man that was beaten, rejected, and persecuted by the very same people that he was willing to suffer the punishment of hell for. Talk about a man that burned with passion to see people saved. A man that was so passionate about seeing people rescued from the penalty of hell that he said he would take hell for them. We must keep in mind that this wasn't a flippant phrase that he expressed out of an emotional, uh, overwhelming emotional experience. These were all inspired by the words of God or by the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, Paul lists seven blessings that are really distinctions that the Jews experienced as far as being God's people. First off, Paul says they are Israelites. The only reason why the Jews experience these blessings from a national level is because they are God's Israelites. Uh, they are Israelites. Israelites are not all descendants of Abraham, but descendants of Abraham through his son Isaac and through his son Jacob. Only those descendants experience blessings from God because they are God's chosen people. We'll talk about this more in verses 6 through 13. The second thing that he says here is they experience adoption. This goes back to God freeing the Jews from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son, even my firstborn. So within this context, the adoption is not in reference to salvation because if that was the case, then every Jew that was born would experience salvation. This is in reference to God sovereignly selecting an entire nation to receive His special calling and blessing and to serve as His witnesses. He continues on and he says they experienced glory. The reference here is in reference to the Shekinah glory that is displayed all throughout the Old Testament. An example of that being the, uh, the cloud that, that led the Jews by day and the pillar that led them by night and, and really leading them out of Egypt. They received the covenants. The biblical definition of a covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties in which God is the guarantor or the enforcer. We know that God made several covenants between the nation of Israel. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. We are now underneath the new covenant, which is available to all people, but the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenant were specifically to the uh, Jewish nation, or the nation of Israel. 
They received the law. The law was given by God to the children of Israel as a code of conduct to reflect the holy character of God. No other nation had this type of law. Even though God's moral law applies to us today, the law was officially delivered through the nation of Israel. Then he talks about temple service. This is in reference to really the sacrificial system. We understand that we can't keep the law. In the Old Testament, those that missed the law, which would have been everyone, they participated in the sacrificial system, which is really a foreshadowing of the Christ. That came through the nation of Israel. And then you have the promises. The promises that Paul mentions here is most likely in reference to the promises regarding the Messiah. We can find that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And so that, those promises, that's what's going on with the nation of Israel. Paul closes out this first section in verse 5 by reminding the Jews that the promises of the Messiah were indeed fulfilled through the fathers, which are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what Paul does in these first five verses here is he explains both the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews as the sovereign election of the Israelites as God's chosen nation. In verses 1 through 3, Paul anguishes over the fact that many Jews have rejected the Messiah. And he assures the Jews that God's choice of the Israelites being chosen as his nation was for one purpose, and there have been several indicators that would support God's choice in this matter. And as we move past this opening section and we dive into verses 6 through 13, Paul dives into a deeper look at God's sovereign election process by explaining God's purposeful choice of setting aside certain people to fulfill his plan for the nation of Israel. And so through these verses, we gain some insight, just a little bit of insight, in how the faithfulness of God matches up with God's sovereign election. The first point here this morning is this. God's faithful call is delivered through His divine selection. God's faithful call is delivered through His divine selection. Look down at verse 6. Paul says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. The word of God here is in reference to the promise that God made to the patriarchs of Israel. What are those promises? You can flip back to it if you would like, but back in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, the promise that God made to Abraham was that the entire world would be blessed through his seed. This, of course, being in reference to the redemption that we experience through Jesus Christ. Even though we, um, being Gentiles, we are not a direct ascendant of Abraham, but we are still blessed through his seed because of the redemption that we experience in Jesus Christ. So what is happening within this verse, verse 6, Paul is acknowledging the fact that many believe that God's promise made to Abraham and the nation of Israel had failed because the nation of Israel rejected the fulfillment of God's promise through Jesus Christ. But Paul objects to that assumption by pointing out the fact that they are not all Israel that are of Israel. In other words, Paul says that the reason why not every Jew is a benefit of God's specific blessings is because not every descendant of Abraham is part of God's chosen people. So some pack this a little bit. We know that Abraham had many different children. We see this in Genesis chapter 12, or sorry, Genesis chapter 25 verses 1 through 6. Isaac was not his only child, but even though Abraham had many children, only one chosen son, Isaac, was the seed of Abraham that carried the nation of Israel. Paul says in verse 7, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. We know 
that there are two aspects of the family of Abraham. You have the physical descendants of Abraham, which is the nation of Israel. They are the beneficiaries of God's promises made to the nation of Israel. And you have the spiritual family of Abraham, which is of all of those that are genuine followers of Christ. Me, and, and if you're a Christian, you being that as well, both Jew and Gentile, in which Paul says, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. In verse 6, Paul asserts that true membership in God's chosen people is based on faith, not physical ancestry. The genuine followers of Christ will receive the spiritual blessings promised by God to his elect. The point that Paul is making within these two verses here is this. The reason why it seems as if the word of God to Israel had failed is because not all who descended from Israel are Israel. They had always been a true people of God within the nation of Israel, and that is a spiritual Israel within the physical Israel. Paul says in verse 8, They which are of the children of the flesh, that's descendants of Abraham's other children by Hagar and Keturah, they are not children of God, but the children of the promise, descendants of Isaac, are counted for the seed. But when the Jews accused God's plan for his nation of being a failure based upon their rejection of the Messiah, they assumed that all descendants of Abraham were recipients of God's complete, both spiritual and national blessings. But John MacArthur puts it this way in these verses. He says, Paul's point is that just as not all of Abraham's descendants belong to the physical people of God or national Israel, not all of those who are true children of Abraham through Isaac are the true spiritual people of God and enjoy the promises made to Abraham's spiritual children. God in his sovereign rule elected Isaac to be the seed of Abraham that would fulfill the promise of the national Israel. Isaac was the result of Abraham and Sarah's act of faith. Ishmael, another son of Abraham, was the result of Abraham's and Sarah's um, lack of faith. I meant to say act if I said lack earlier. Isaac was born by God's sovereign plan as he promised to Abraham. Ishmael, Hagar's son, was born out of the will of man. And we'll talk about that here. Paul alludes to this in verse 9. He says, which, which is really a quote from Genesis chapter 18, verse 10. He says, For the word of the promise, at this time will I come and Sarah will have a son. Here are some practical takeaways that we can gain from what's going on here. Blessings came when Abraham placed his faith in God's sovereign plan. Blessings were withheld when Abraham and Sarah placed their trust in themselves and not in God's sovereign plan. So if we were to look at this particular situation right here regarding Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Ishmael and Isaac, we can see several results that occur when man places his trust in himself versus when he places his trust in God. First thing we see here, when we don't trust in the sovereignty of God, we resort to the finite wisdom of ourselves. When we don't trust into the sovereignty of God, we resort to the finite wisdom of ourselves. In Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, we see this rationalization that takes place when Sarah, when she operated according to her will rather than trusting in God. We understand that at this particular point here, the promise had already been made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that he would be a father of a great nation. Abraham and Sarah had no children. Sarah was tired of waiting. We've talked about this before, but during that particular time period, if a woman did not have children, she looked at by the community as being cursed by God. In other words, she was not blessed by God as others. We understand that children are a blessing of God, but if we were to look at a woman that did not have a child today in our society, we wouldn't come to that conclusion. It was a big deal when a woman did not have a baby. And so Sarah 
uh, and I'm not putting all the blame on Sarah here. Abraham had his issues as well. Both of them, not trusting in the will of God, began to rationalize how they could take care of God and really try to quicken the sovereign plan of God. In Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. Now Sarah, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had in handmaid an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abraham, or Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go into thy handmaid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Really taking the spiritual lead there in that situation. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. When we fail to trust in the sovereignty of God for our marriage, for our family, for our finances, for our home, for our money, we resort to the only solution we know, and that is our own wisdom. Our wisdom cannot be trusted because the Bible says that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked as Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 points out. So just because we can't see God's overall plan right now doesn't mean that God does not have it all worked out. There's a second thing that can happen here. When we don't trust in the sovereignty of God, we create more heartache for ourselves and for others. Abram had an intimate relationship with someone that was not his wife. Now we know that Abram did not have the Ten Commandments at this particular time, so there was not a direct command against adultery, but nothing good ever came out of an extramarital relationship. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. Nothing good ever came out of it. Such was the case of the situation between Abraham and Hagar. Even though Sarah encouraged Abraham to lie with Hagar, we see that when Hagar became pregnant, Sarah was filled with resentment. In Genesis chapter 16, verses 4 through 6, it says, And he went unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that he had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thine hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. When we fail to trust in the sovereignty of God, it creates strain in relationships. This brings us to our third aspect here within this section. When we don't trust in the sovereignty of God, we fail to trust in the promises of God. Think about it for a moment. If we say that we believe that God is sovereign, in other words, God is in complete control, and we say that we believe in God to be powerful enough to save us, to restore our relationship with Him, and we fail to trust in God in other areas, then we really don't trust in God. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, it says, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and called with God, uh, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations." Neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and the king shall come out of thee. This is the second time we know that Abraham uh, appeared, or God appeared before Abraham, but God in his grace was delivering the message a second time, but because Abraham did not trust in God's sovereign plan for his children, his response this second time was an unbelief in God's reassuring promise. 
In Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 17, we see Abraham's response. He says, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name, Sarai. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, and the kings of people be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old, and Sarah that is ninety years old bear? Think about the response that Abraham had towards God. He was already chosen for his faith, but Abraham was not a perfect man. God reassures him of his sovereign plan, and Abraham responds by laughing. If we don't trust in the sovereignty of God, then how are we going to trust God for all the little intricate details of our life, for our finances, for our future, for children, our marriage. Regarding this protection, when we fail to trust in God's sovereignty, it affects multiple different areas of our life. But here's the thing. The lack of trust on behalf of Abraham and Sarah did not alter God's sovereign plan. Think about that for a moment. The lack of faith in Abraham and Sarah at that particular moment did not alter God's plan. Abraham was still blessed through Isaac. God's divine selection of Isaac was chosen from the very beginning, but much heartache would have been avoided by Abraham and Sarah if they would have just trusted in God's sovereign plan from the very beginning. The sovereign plan of God is not dependent upon our heritage. If it were, all the children of Abraham would have been part of the nation of Israel, but God chose Isaac. We see the conception of Isaac, that God's faithful call is delivered through his divine selection, but through the birth of Jacob, we see, number two, God's faithful call corresponds with his divine plan. Look down at verses 10 through 13. We'll read that together. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, think about that for a moment, that the promises of God according to the election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. To fully understand what's going on in this verses, we have to think about the birthright process. The birthright process was given to all firstborn children. The birthright uh, was really a special blessing that was given to the firstborn. They were the ones that were acknowledged as really being the ones that were responsible for the family after the father passed away. They were also the ones that received the bigger inheritance. Based upon the timing of the birth, we know that Esau was the older son, Jacob was the younger son. But things switched around here. So from the birthright aspect, Jacob was really going to be subject to his older brother Esau, but God had a different plan. And the answer or the question really would be, why would God do it that way? Well, it says in your scripture here that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. What do we see in this example given by Paul regarding Jacob and Esau is that God's divine call corresponds with his divine plan. It's not based upon merit or status of the individual. In simple terms, God elected Jacob to be the carrier of the nation of Israel because God wanted it to be that way. God wanted it to be that way. But again, it wasn't like this plan was shot from the hip. God told Rebekah that his plan would go against the norm in verse 12. He says, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. So God, in his sovereign election of Jacob over Esau, preferred to use Jacob to fulfill his divine plan over Esau. This is what it means when Paul says in verse 13, It is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Within this context here, 
Paul is quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, and he's switching now, really talking about this national future of Israel. We know that both Jacob and Esau represent two people groups. Jacob was one of the patriarchs of Israel, and Esau was the father of the Edomites. When God chose Jacob over Esau, this was really a powerful display that God, through his sovereign election, has the right and freedom to choose whomever he wants to accomplish his kingdom purposes. I wish we could see all of God's sovereign plan, but we can't see beyond what's given to us in Scripture. But because God is sovereign, God has the right to choose whomever He will to accomplish His kingdom purposes. So how can we be encouraged by all of this? Even though Paul was speaking about the nation of Israel, there are a couple of truths that we can glean from this passage regarding the sovereign election of God. This just gives us a small glimpse of how God works from a sovereign standpoint. We see that through the birth of Isaac, God's faithful call is delivered through his divine selection. God did not choose Ishmael to be the carrier of his chosen people. He chose Isaac. Even though Abraham and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands, that did not alter God's sovereign plan. A plan that God had established from the very beginning. We talked about this last week. That God's plan, his sovereignty, already has everything all worked out from the very beginning. We don't see all of that in front of us, but we know that God has a plan for our lives from the very beginning. It's all part of God's sovereignty. The second thing we can be encouraged by this is this. We see that through the birth of Jacob, God's faithful call corresponds with his divine plan. Paul says that the future of Jacob and Esau, as well as the nation of Israel, were decided before either child was born, before they had ever done anything good or bad. God's plan for Israel was not based upon merit or good works. It was decided beforehand. Why did God do it that way? Because God wanted to. We don't question the sovereignty of God. We can. I've done it before. But God does what He wants to do because God is God. And we gain comfort in the fact that everything that God does is good. It's holy. It's just. It is pure. It is righteous. And so when we have things that come into our life that we are experiencing that does not make sense, why would God take my baby away when we prayed so hard? Why would God force us out of our home when we had everything going the way we should? Why would God not provide the funds that I need to be able to go to college or pay for my next semester, fill in the blank? We can tend to question God. But going back to what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, as followers of Christ, as genuine believers, we understand that all things do work together for good. Why? To accomplish the will of God in our lives, and that is us being conformed to the image of His Son. So as Christians, we take comfort in the fact that God's sovereign election is not dependent upon our heritage, our good works, or our merit. We take comfort in the fact that God's sovereign plan will come to pass regardless of our response, as was evident with Abraham and Sarah. And we take comfort in the fact that God is in complete control of the destinies of all men and all nations. There is no excuse for a lack of faith and trust in God. So as we close out this morning, I never want to assume that everybody is going to experience the spiritual blessings that God promises in His Word. Praise the Lord that the gospel is not only for the Jews. It's also for the Gentiles. Praise the Lord that the spiritual blessings that God provides and promises for those uh, that are saved are available for us, even though we're not Jews. But the question is, has there ever been a point in your life where you called upon Christ to be your Savior? 
The Bible says that it's because of our sin we all have our relationship with God severed. We are all separated from God. The Bible says that God with compassion moved. He moved and sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And all those that repent and believe in Christ, turn away from their wicked ways and believe in Christ and call upon Him to be their Savior, God will in no wise cast out. Has there been a moment in your life where you've done that? 